Good morning and welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I am Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. I hope you're doing very well on this morning. It is our 783rd day together in the Word of God, one chapter at a time, and we're coming to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've kind of ended the first part of the book where Paul was establishing his heart for the Thessalonians the Thessalonian church, and he was really sort of reminding them of the kind of ministry he had among them, really setting an example for what kind of ministry they should value, uh, because other people had come in who weren't really following that same ministry model of, you know, heartfelt, sincere giving. They were sort of twisting things a bit, and so now we're going to see a little bit more clearly just how things were being twisted um, and what Paul's concern was for the Thessalonian church as he's addressing this in chapters 4 and 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It is a wonderful, rich treasure for us. We've been in your word now day by day for over two years, and we keep seeing things that you're showing us that we need to know and understand and receive and believe and live. So, Father, lead us. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lead us to lives of holiness and trusting you that we might be faithful by your grace and fruitful for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, Paul is a preacher, and one of the things that preachers can sometimes tend to do is to use the word finally, or our last point, or as we draw to a close, and then they still have a good chunk of their sermon left, right? This is about the halfway point of uh, the book of First Thessalonians, although there's three chapters before this and two after um, some of the early parts are a little bit shorter. So this is a little bit more than halfway, and he's saying finally. And he still has actually several more points to make. So, but they're all under the heading of living a life that pleases God. As you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. As believers who are loved by God, who are saved by grace, who are made holy by Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is in Christ and Christ alone, we ought to aspire, we ought to strive to live lives that please God, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but rather because we're so thankful for what we have in Jesus Christ, and we know that we want to be more like Jesus the one and only Son of God, as we are adopted children of God and younger brothers and sisters of Jesus, we want to be like our older brother and the firstborn from the dead and the head of the new humanity and the author and finisher of our faith. We want to be like him. We want to please God. So this is really the overarching theme for chapters four and five. How do we walk in a way that pleases God? Well, first is to abstain from sexual immorality. There were false teachers going around in the early church who taught people a form of what we sometimes call Gnosticism, which is this secret knowledge about transcendent things, and they sort of have a, a disregard for the body. Some of these people, in their disregard for the body, would encourage believers to beat themselves and to starve themselves because they hate the body. But others would take a position to say, well, in, in a disregard for the body, it doesn't really matter what you do in your body. And it seems like this is the group that may have infiltrated partly into the Thessalonian community. And Paul is answering them. This idea that you do, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. And that is not true. The will of God the will of God for believers is our sanctification. That is our growth in holiness. As I prayed at the beginning, that we would have lives of holiness because that's a major theme here in chapter 4. Our sanctification is our growth in holiness, that we would learn to control our own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. So our bodies as Paul would say in uh, 1 Corinthians, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit 
who is in us, whom we have from God. And so we are to honor God with our bodies. Our bodies are to be given as instruments of righteousness, as Paul would later write in Romans uh, chapter 6. Our bodies are to be given as instruments of righteousness. And so we are to abstain from sexual immorality, learn how to control our own body in holiness and honor, not to be given over to the passion of lust like mindless animals or like unbelievers who do not know God, and that we be careful not only to safeguard the holiness of our own body, but that we not transgress or wrong our brothers in this matter or sisters in this matter, that we not lust, that we not cause anyone to stumble, that we not enter into inappropriately flirtatious relationships or adulterous relationships within the context of the church, especially because that is highly destructive and it is a clear violation of the word of God. And the language here is just so strong. This is the will of God, right? Don't act like those who don't know God. Don't transgress or wrong anyone in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. So not only is this the will of God, but God is going to carry out vengeance on those who willfully disregard and violate his will. God has not called you to impurity, but to holiness. So you see the triple emphasis on holiness here in verse 3, your sanctification, in verse 4, in holiness and honor, and in verse 7, God has not called you for impurity, but in holiness. What is holiness? It means that we belong to God. Everything about us belongs to God. And so we should live as those who belong to God. And the, the sign and the reality that we belong to God is that God has given his Holy Spirit to us. So Paul addresses us in three different ways to talk about our holiness and then wraps it up by saying that he's given his Holy Spirit to us. So this is really important. We need to avoid lust, impropriety, um, causing other people to stumble, flirtatious behavior, um, carnality of all kinds. We need to put that away. We need to live self-controlled and control our bodies in holiness and honor. Second major area addressed in this chapter is brotherly love. Brotherly love, that we care for one another within the body of Christ. And to be able to do so, we should make it our aim, our goal, our aspiration to live quietly, mind our own affairs, work with our own hands so that we can walk properly and be dependent on no one. So the idea is the, the Christian community there in Thessalonica, the Christians who are able to work would mind their own business, live quietly, work with their hands, and that they would have enough so that they could be a self-sufficient community. They could take care of the ones who are legitimately unable to work. Those who are too old or widows who have no family to support them or those who are sick or disabled in some way and who can't work, that the church would be so industrious and hardworking for the sake of being able to take care of themselves so as to have a good testimony before outsiders. Because if the church is dependent upon outside help, that shows that Christians are lazy, that they're irresponsible, that they don't that they don't mind their own business, that they don't that Christianity is not really good for you, not really good for your community. And so we need to have a better testimony than that by working hard 
and taking care of one another. One of the best ways that we can show a good testimony to the world is by the way that we within the church care for one another um, and, and work hard to be able to do so. The final part of this is getting us into what I told you at the beginning of this book was one of the major themes. It's going to be here in chapter four and continuing in chapter five. There were evidently some false teachers who came in and who told the church in Thessalonica that the day of the Lord had already come, that Jesus had already come, and that, or another possibility is only those who are alive when Jesus comes again will actually be saved. And so those who have fallen asleep because they didn't they didn't stay alive until Jesus came back again, that means that God has let go of them. So we know both of these false teachings were circulating in the early church, the one that Jesus had already come again, and also the one that, you know, unless it's only those people who are actually still alive who are going to be transformed when Christ comes again. Neither one of those things is true, right? Jesus had not come again by the time the Thessalonian letter was written. And obviously those who've fallen asleep in Christ are not lost, uh, but their souls are with the Lord and their bodies will be raised when Jesus comes again. For, for the modern context, the modern church, we're not dealing with those same exact false teachings, but there are two very common false teachings or misunderstandings regarding the second coming and the day of the Lord and the day of resurrection, judgment day, that I do think this section helps clarify. One is a sort of um, reductionistic view of the hope of the Christian. So many people in America, many Christians around the world, in fact, have a very reductionistic view that simply says, if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die. And the Bible does say that for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It does say that. And Paul says that if he remains on in the body, that's good for the church, but to leave the body, he would be home with the Lord, and that would be better by far. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Those things are in Philippians 1 and then also in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So that's true, right? But it's reductionistic because there's more to it than that. We were created by God to be body and soul. All that language earlier in the chapter about your body is holy, it is set apart for the Lord, and you are to control your body in holiness and honor, and the sanctification of your body matters. Your body doesn't stop mattering to God just because you die and your soul goes to be with Jesus. All believers will be raised from the dead if we have fallen asleep or died before Jesus comes again. So that false understanding, this sort of not really necessarily an outright denial, but a, a tremendous neglect of this truth that we will be raised bodily when Jesus comes again. We will get a glorified body that will be made like Jesus' resurrected body to live forever. That is true, and that's counteracted by this passage here. So the other false teaching that's counteracted by this passage here is the teaching of a secret rapture of the church that's going to happen sometime before the second coming of Jesus. This passage is so clear. If you look at verses 16 through 18, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is not a secret rapture. There's a cry of command. There's a voice of an archangel. There's the sound of the trumpet of God. There's the resurrection of the dead. This is not a secret rapture of the church. The Bible never teaches a secret rapture of the church some years before Jesus comes again. The idea that somehow all the Christians in the world are just going to disappear or will just be caught up to meet the Lord and then it's going to be like seven years or three and a half years, depending on which version of this false teaching you've been exposed to. That is a false teaching. It is clear that this is as Jesus is coming on the day of the Lord. The beginning of chapter five that we'll look at in a few days makes it very clear that the day he's talking about is the day of the Lord. It's not days of the Lord. It's not multiple comings of Christ. It's the great day of the Lord. As Jesus is coming, as he is descending, with this cry of command, voice of the archangel, sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ are raised to be caught up together with him, and then we are caught up together with him as he comes. Not to like park above the clouds and stay there for seven years. That is taught nowhere in the Bible. There's not even a passage that even hints at it. It's not there. The secret rapture of seven years or three and a half years prior to the second coming of Jesus is completely fabricated by taking verses out of context and manipulating them to mean what they don't mean. It's not taught by scripture, and it's very widely held by lots of people. They can sell lots of novels, they can make lots of movies, but it's, it's bogus. It's made up nonsense. It's not in the Bible, period. And if you have questions about that, you're welcome to email me. My email address is pastor at forestillpca.org. I'd be happy to show you if you think you have a passage of the Bible that teaches a secret rapture of the church. Maybe you were taught to interpret Revelation that way. Wrong. It's just, it's just a very, very misguided way of reading the Bible. And it actually does great damage, which when we get to Revelation, we'll see that that way of looking at Revelation, that way of looking at Scripture, does great damage to the hope of the Christian and to the call of the Christian. So it's why I get a little bit passionate about it, because I used to believe it myself when I was in high school and early college. I believed in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church and all of that stuff, but it's not in the Bible. And when I realized that, I thought, why would somebody make that up? And it's kind of escapism, kind of teaches Christians that, you know, we're going to get out of this world before the things get really bad. No, um, we are, we're in it until Jesus comes again and he will preserve us through whatever he has in store for the world. So we should encourage one another with this because the real point is that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Those who are asleep in Christ are not lost. We will see them again. They will be raised first. We will be caught up together with the Lord. We will be together. We will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. Live a holy life now. Because on that day, you're going to have a holy body free from sin forever. Live in anticipation of the coming of Christ now because he is coming again. And live in love for one another now because we will be with one another forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this chapter and for what it teaches us about holiness and love and the coming of Christ and our hope in him. 
make these things very real to us. And help us to believe them and to live them in our lives day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Tomorrow we're going to be back in the book of Job, and we're actually going to be entering into that section of Job where Job and his friends are going to be involved in dialogue with one another. Um, very challenging and very helpful book. I hope you can stick with us throughout these studies throughout the rest of this year. Have a blessed day in the Lord.